Good evening, Polypop. Welcome back to TVD tonight, featuring Sam Cedar and Stefan Molyneux, hosted, as always, by Hip Use. Take it away, Keith. Hey, guys. Welcome to uh, Polypop's 12th To Be Debated. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Warner Brothers The Campaign, starring Will Farrell and uh, Zach Galifianaris, and this is coming to DVD October 30th, and we'll do, we have a debate for you. So let me introduce our guests. I think most of you guys probably know who these cool cats are already. But we have uh, Sam Sater and we have uh, Stefan Molyneux. So Sam, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, uh, my name is Sam Cedar, and as you can see from the, uh, this time I've figured out how to do the uh, lower third. Um, it's, um, I, I do a daily show uh, called The Majority Report. It's live. Uh, from uh, 12 noon Eastern on a daily basis, and um, it's uh, available as a podcast, and uh, that's about it. I also do a weekend radio show, but uh, it's not available online. And I have a YouTube channel, youtube.com, Sam Cedar. Sam, we're, we're, we're really lucky to have you back for your second TBD, and uh, we're really lucky to have for our first time on Polypop, uh, Stefan Molnew. So, Stefan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I uh, like long romantic walks uh, on the beach, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, and uh, chilling out to um, Beethoven. And uh, I run actually the biggest philosophy show in the world, the Free Domain Radio, freedomainradio.com. 40 million downloads. I've got a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Free Domain Radio. We're just in the middle of sort of a big speaking tour from Brazil all the way to Vancouver and Toronto. And I'm really, really happy to be discussing these most essential ideas with your great community. Well, I have to I have to confess, guys, that uh, many times I call myself the debate moderator. I don't know how much I have to really debate you guys because I know a little bit about your histories, and I know you guys can talk to the cows come home in a really uh, academic way. So I, I guess my first question, and I'm just going to let you guys take over, is really kind of a, a governmental philosophical one. Um, what what do you see? We'll start with you, Stefan. Is kind of the role of government in the free market? I know it's a really broad question, but I know you have really strong opinions about it, and. Uh, and a clear vision. So go ahead. What do you say, sir? Well, hopefully uh, nobody's interested in my opinions. Anything I can prove will be of value, I hope. But um, the government, as uh, we all know, is, is a group of individuals who claim and, and possess the moral right to initiate force in a given geographical area. The government is an ancient institution which was inherited from Stone Age tribes and inflicted by a wide variety of very nasty people. Uh, throughout history, but it's one of these weird things that's old but escapes moral question, right? So the other institutions which we inherited from prehistory, like slavery, the subjugation of women and children, and so on, these have managed to be questioned and discarded, but as far as the monolith of the state goes, you know, we sort of stare up at it. I get this image of, like, the, the apes at the beginning of 2001 staring up at that big, giant obelisk, just going, ooh, <laughs> that's big and powerful and alien. And... I sort of take Voltaire's approach, you know, the 18th century French writer who's, who wrote a whole series, it's quite a popular genre back then, wrote a whole series of stories of what French society would look like to one of the, quote, savages who came over from the New World and, and examined it. And in the same way, I think it's really important for us to look at uh, all of our institutions and question, relative to the generally accepted moral principles of society, whether they're good or bad or indifferent. And we have something in society called let's not initiate force against each other. You know, self-defense is very rare, but, you know, it's something which can be discussed. But we don't like the initiation of the use of force. Now, if we just expand this thing called the NAP, the non-aggression principle, if we expand that to include 
all of humanity, then tragically, or perhaps wonderfully, the moral underpinnings and justifications for the state as a whole collapse. And we end up with a universality of ethics and a universality of the non-aggression principle, which allows us to examine the mind-bending but deeply exciting concept of a society where spontaneous organization takes the place of centralized coercion. Because this cycle of, you know, the rise and fall of states, the rise and fall of fiat currency, uh, the the inevitable collapses that are so repetitive in history of of democracies and, and of the tiny little bits of free market activity that is generally taken over by corporate and financial fascism. Really interested in breaking that cycle, and I don't see any way that we can do that while we include the state as an unquestioned, centralized way to organize society. So I think that, uh, Sam, I'm going to turn it right over to you, but I think that's probably the most eloquent kind of definition of like libertarianism I might have ever heard. Um, So Sam, you could respond directly or maybe start with your own philosophy. Well, you know, I, I think there's. Uh, I'm definitely in favor of uh, of questioning our institutions. I mean, I I feel like I do that uh, every day. I, I I'm not sure that we have always had uh, states, as it were, or, or governments in the way that we have. Let's say, uh, in I mean, I know uh, Stefan's from from Canada that we have in uh, Canada or the United States. I mean, I think uh, certainly throughout history we've had. Uh, feudal systems which uh, are more maybe not necessarily spontaneously organized uh, smaller communities but um, you know I think there's uh, it's it's certainly worthwhile of an endeavor to question uh, these institutions uh, and to strive to make them more responsive and more effective but I think at the end of the day um, there's a reason why we have a central authority on some level and that is because there as much as I would like that we all shared this non-aggression uh, morality the fact is that history is borne out that uh, there's absolutely no reason to believe that everyone is going to share this at any given time and so to the extent that we uh, feel that there are other sort of competing codes of, of morality uh, that um, well that we we shouldn't have slavery let's say or that uh, uh, that we should have some measure of of equality uh, amongst men and that um, uh, perhaps even uh, property rights for that matter you need some type of uh, central authority and of course these governments uh, only exist uh, to the extent that uh, they meet uh, some basic expectations of the people and the the vast majority of people. I mean, this is how we have revolutions. And so um, I think there's value to it. And, you know, uh, and I think from an academic perspective, that's a, it's a wonderful um, uh, thing to engage in. Uh, but um, ultimately, as a political philosophy, I think that's very problematic because uh, when you begin to undercut the pinnings of government, when you begin to say that government as an institution is fundamentally wrong, uh, you 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 sadly uh, begin to basically just uh, create a vacuum of power, which at least in this day and age in the United States, I think what we're experiencing is that's being filled uh, in many respects by corporations, which, um, you know, they, in some instances, I guess they do have their own paramilitary forces. Uh, and But uh, the fact that they don't have a monopoly on force is really no uh, great, uh, great shakes uh, as a, as a, as a, um, as an institution, the corporation, uh, I find, uh, you know, to be 
be something that needs to be curtailed. And um, government, I think, is the best instrument in which to do that. Go ahead, Sam. Respond directly. <laughs> okay, so... Um... The, the idea that feudalism was a self-organizing self-organizing system was, I'm sure, just a misstatement. I mean, it was very top-down and, and heavily inflicted, and the serfs were considered like crops to be born and, bought and sold with the land and then kicked off the land during the enclosure movement. But the idea that, that um, uh, voluntarism or the idea that, that we, we not only shouldn't have but can't morally have a government at the center of society, you often hear this when you, when you propose this idea, which is that, well, if everyone agreed to be nonviolent, uh, then we could have that kind of system. But actually quite the opposite is true, uh, if you really think about it. There are significant advantages to violence in society. Uh, you get a lot of resources, uh, you scare a lot of people into obeying you, the sort of ownership of human beings, whether directly through uh, slavery, sort of secondhand through feudalism, or indirectly through taxation. The owning of other human beings' labor and the harvesting of human labor has been a constant threat. It's incredibly profitable. There's nothing better to own than human beings when it comes to gathering resources. So we have this this drive and this desire and a great biological, if not moral, profit from the use of violence. It is our very tendency to want to use violence to achieve our ends that makes the state so dangerous. In, in other words, it's not because everyone need it's not that everyone needs to be good for us to have a stateless society. We can't have a, st a state society, can't have a state of society because people aren't good. And the bad people inevitably lie to the majority, get hold of the reins of power, you know, sell off the unborn for, to, for the sake of bribing current generations into voting for them. And you end up with this catastrophe. Uh, so uh, the idea that property needs protection, <laughs> I would say is not the case. It's kind of a contradiction to say, I have to create an entity which has the legal right to take my property virtually at will in order to protect my property. Um, the, the, the maintenance of property rights is sort of another question. It certainly does not uh, necessarily need uh, a state. And the last thing that you mentioned was that uh, corporations, ooh, the big C. Well, of course, corporations are a statist Franken monster <laughs> from hell. Uh, corporations are not a free market entities. They are specific personhood granted to aggregations of economic power. The general idea, I mean, this is very, I think this is fairly true. The general idea behind corporations is uh, that it creates an entity of indirect taxation. So you, you tax the corporation. And in return for submitting to that taxation, you allow the oligarchies of, of power, the, the economic overlords uh, to be free of legal repercussions for their actions, right? So if some, the corporation does something wrong, you sue the corporation. You don't take the houses of the executive. So it gives them a legal shield, and in return, they're willing to pay for that. Uh, but it's fundamentally a fascistic, anti-free market institution. And the, so something that the government creates, uh, and then saying we need to have the government protect us from that which we create, uh, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I mean, I... I, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, uh, but but the the it it sort of begs the question. I mean, where has this utopia existed? I mean, if there is a uh, a an inherent um, a benefit to people uh, in to, to uh, exercise violence, uh, I want your property, I'm going to take it. Uh, I want your labor, I'm going to take it by enslaving you. Um, what, what what do you propose? in where the rubber meets the road. I mean, philosophically, yes, I can appreciate what you're saying here, uh, but in the context of politics, which are um, uh, very earthly, uh, I don't know exactly uh, what you're talking about in some respects. I mean, I have, n historically speaking, what you're talking about, as far as I know, has not uh, existed uh, in any grand, in any significant 
scale. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I suppose it could, but uh, you, you haven't really addressed the problem of the fact that there are going to be people who are going to uh, come by and, um, and take, uh, force me into slavery or uh, take my possessions or uh, subjugate me unless I have a, um, a, a greater degree of force in which to meet with them. And of course, you know, uh, that's, some people are lucky, I guess. I mean, you're a, a strapping guy, uh, and I think, uh, you know, uh, I would do fairly well in that endeavor. I mean, uh, but uh, there's a lot of people who won't. And, I mean, I guess I, I don't see the, uh, the, the, I mean, maybe we have a different notion of what is moral in that world, but I don't, uh, that's not exactly a place I would want to live. Well, this this argument, uh, and I I know that this is a metaphorical trick, so I don't mean to put you in this corner, but it's an analogy that I I think is worthwhile. So if you and I were debating 17th century uh, abolitionism, right, the end of slavery, then your position would it be analogous to saying, well, you see, slavery has always existed. You show me this utopia without slaves, and all that will happen is if the government doesn't enable it and regulate it then people will just start enslaving each other left, right, and center because there's a slavery vacuum. And if the government doesn't manage it, then the other people will just do it in a more violent way. But what happens, of course, is that when people generally accept and understand a moral principle, then there doesn't, there isn't a power vacuum right afterwards, right? So it wasn't like, um, oh, sorry, in the long run, at least. So when slavery was abolished throughout most of the uh, free world, and I, I think it was only the US that required a civil war in Brazil, they just stopped catching slaves and it was all said and done. When slavery is ended, there's not a slavery vacuum. There's not a serfdom vacuum when you end serfdom. Uh, when you give equal rights to women, there's not this, I have to go and subjugate. It, it, it's not natural that we just will always subjugate. It's just that we have to keep extending our moral understanding of personhood. And we've, of course, extended it to minorities. We've extended it to slaves. We've extended it to serfs, to women. We're in the process of doing so to children. It doesn't create a vacuum. An extension of moral understanding uh, is something that actually moves us up the ladder. It doesn't just shift us from one side to another. So if people in general understand that the initiation of force is, is immoral, and then, sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, certainly there have been societies uh, that we can point to throughout the ages where, where slavery hasn't existed. I, I don't know that I can say the same for, for what you're proposing, but the, uh, I think you've, you've, you've misinterpreted the idea of there being a vacuum in terms of, uh, uh, of controlling certain forces amongst us. I mean, we can actually achieve less slavery. In other words, uh, I can have a state uh, in the context of the United States that is free uh, of slavery, let's say, or I can have a region or there can be countries that exist uh, while the institution of slavery uh, may exist somewhere else in the world. And I would argue that to a certain extent, look, you know, there was a vacuum. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, I'm not sure where this clothing was made, but it's arguably made by slave labor. Uh, maybe perhaps not in the exact same form, but there's a very good argument that uh, much of what we enjoy in this country is a function of while, uh, you know, maybe we could quibble over what the payment is, but uh, maybe it's indentured servitude. But um, I, I think there's there's an argument that we haven't quite fully uh, abolished that, that, that dynamic. But the idea of diminishing the amount of it in no way brings about uh, something that is problematic. As we diminish the size of government, unless you're speculating that one day everyone's going to wake up on the same day uh, and say, no government, uh, we'll just all self-organize. As we diminish the power of government, 
what we're diminishing is their ability to put a check on those forces in society that want to exploit other people the commons if you will all of our uh, resources and we slowly and, and and frankly i'm convinced that's what's what's happening to a certain extent so as we diminish the the uh, the power of government or we corrupt government uh... you know we're going into we can contract the size of government if you want uh... but i don't know that we can ever get to a place where there is no government i don't know how you organize let's say in the united states three hundred million people in spontaneous groups of organization. Stefan, go ahead. Maybe you could describe what that looks like for us. Well, sure. Um, uh, let me just w address one thing, though, um, Sam mentioned, and for those who may not be familiar with the exciting gripping economics behind it. The problem of the commons is the idea that, you know, everybody has sheep or cows around a central unowned area, and then everybody has an incentive to let their sheep or cows graze on that area, and it turns into uh, something bolder than my dome and you know so but the problem of course is you don't solve the problem of the gov of the commons with the government because the government isn't owned by anyone and as we can see uh, the government exploits the idea that you go to the government to save you from exploitation uh is is to me is not logical not historically valid not rational uh, the government of course is the greatest pred uh, predation and exploiter uh, in the world uh, the government is the one who can enter you into debts against your will the government is the one who can uh, is the biggest arms sailors uh, sales uh, in the world uh, the government is the one uh, that uh, throws people in jail at a rate in the u.s that is now approaching the stalinesque gulag era uh, the government is the one that uh, forces kids into these horrible uh, brain deadening public schools uh, where they drop out rate at least up here in canada i think it's similar in the u.s it's close to 50 percent and where the people who graduate need remedial courses to fill out a college application. Uh, the governments, uh, governments around the world in the 20th century, excluding wars, were responsible for the outright and direct slaughter of over a quarter of a billion people. Not even including wars. That's just your average famines and, and all of that. And the U.S. foreign policy has killed 30 million people since the end of the Second World War. But this but is I our mean, protector. But, but it's people, is, is that these governments are not uh, aliens? I mean, they are made up of of individuals, and uh, to the extent that they have used these institutions uh, for immoral purposes or purposes that we would disagree with, uh, you can also argue that uh, governments have developed penicillin. Uh, governments have um, have uh, freed slaves. Governments have diminished poverty. Uh, governments have increased the health of its citizens. Um, I mean, uh, all of these things, uh, the, I, I'm not arguing that governments only do good. Uh, and I don't know that uh, if it's a, uh, I, I, I believe that it's a, um, I mean, it's not even a question of uh, how we balance out whether or not government does good versus bad. Uh, it is a question of what is our better choice? And you're, you're, we're talking about this in very theoretical terms. I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you said that is uh, reprehensible about what governments have done. Religions, too, have also been, uh, in, in fact, any uh, um, organizations, groups. I mean, look, the KKK was also spontaneously organized uh, by people, uh, and they did not do good things either. I mean, 
Uh, no, 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 the KKK was the uh, militant arm of the Democratic Party. The KKK was the militant arm of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is not a government. The Democratic Party is not a government either. It is. It was one of, uh, of, of multiple parties at that time. So however people organize together in one form or another, there's always potential for them to do immoral things because uh, people, some people tend to be immoral. And, uh, you know, the question is, how do we mitigate that? And well, you can't create a monopoly of force. Yeah, you can't create a monopoly of force within society and expect it to be manned only by angels. Of course, that's not going to happen. When you create a monopoly of force in society, a dispersion of force within society and expect people to be angels either. Well, let's move out of the theoretical into something more practical. And I won't bore everyone with <laughs> gruesome anarchic history, but uh, there have been examples of multi-hundred-year societies that have existed without, without a state, medieval Iceland and, and Ireland and so on. There are, uh, of course, you can look at something like uh, eBay. Uh, eBay is one of the world's largest employers. Uh, over 350,000 people get their full-time living uh, out of uh, working on eBay. And there's no government. I mean, they have a rating system or a reputation system, which is where people get their economic value from. And uh, there's lots of competition as far as that goes. But to my knowledge, it's virtually impossible to resolve a dispute through eBay. I heard a story. form that was developed by government. You mean the Internet? Yes. Okay, but so we already have it. I mean, it's not like we blow up the roads if we don't have a government. So I don't see how that's... <laughs> But it was, of course, only commercialized by, by the free market or by the remnants of the free market. So, but I'm giving you an example of how people can have 350,000 people can have hundreds and millions, if not billions of economic transactions per year, relying on rating, on reputation, uh, and not requiring uh, a central coercive agency to resolve their disputes. I mean, just not perfect system, but I'm just saying if you were looking for an example of one where that uh, can work. PayPal has a resolution system that doesn't involve courts or the state. I definitely think we can do online auctions without, um, you know, an explicit, uh, mono uh, you know, monopoly of force. I mean, I think that you can't, uh, I mean, I, I don't know eBay well enough, to be honest with you. And if, if you can continually engage in fraud, um, I would hope that eBay would prevent you from, from engaging in that in the future. And so they have the ability, I assume, to shut your account down. Uh, mm -hmm. which, which is, it seems to me to be analogous, at least, you know, in the context of the eBay world. Uh, but the fact that eBay exists and that, um, you know, there were a couple hundred years in, uh, the, the history of, of sort of the, what we would consider maybe, you know, I'm sure also you could argue that people would just self-organize in, uh, you know, in certain periods in American history before it was America. Um, but, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that th there's anything that resembles a full-on society that is operated over an extended period of time uh, that uh, has functioned that well. I mean, I suppose if we went back to some type of agrarian society, it might be a little bit easier, but that's not going to happen either. Well, but see, this is this is the sorry. Let me just finish this point. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I mean, you are the moderator, but but uh, this is the very exciting thing I think about modern technology and so on. I mean, I am not a primitivist in any way, shape, or form. I really like dentists. I'm I'm a big fan of of modern stuff. I mean, this this technology included. But one of the great things about the modern economy is that we have such incredible value from participating in it. And if we do bad things, we can be ostracized or excluded from the immense value of participating in a, a, an economy. 
right? So in eBay, I mean, if you keep cheating people, you'll get downrated, you'll get complaints, and then eventually, I don't know, eBay will shut down your account. It's the same thing uh, with, with PayPal. If you keep cheating people with your visa, right? I was listening to a, a lawyer uh, when I was down at speaking at Freedom Fest, a lawyer was giving a speech about how he was down in South America, he got ripped off by a restaurant. Now he goes back home to San Francisco, what's he going to do? Phone the Bolivian <laughs> police and say, hey, this guy, but well, nothing's going to happen. But he phones Visa and he says, these guys ripped me off and Visa investigated and just canceled the payment. That's a way of, of a non-coercive interaction in the same way that down ratings or having your account uh, suspended or canceled in, in PayPal or whatever it is. There's such an immense value and, and wealth really in participating in a modern economy. And we have a way of information sharing about cheats and liars and thieves to exclude them from that process that they really can't last very long. And from an economic calculation standpoint, it's way better to build your reputation and be honest. Now, I mean, this doesn't take into account serial murderers and rapists and so on, but here we have a way. These aren't these aren't mutually exclusive propositions. Okay. I think that yes, it's good that we have um, you know online rating uh, uh, things to sort of say this is a bad business. Don't go there. Or these guys uh, are you know uh, when they uh, when they I don't know uh, dry clean your jackets. They 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 keep putting stains on there. But 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 there's so much more to a society than these type of uh, transactions. I mean uh, these okay. Type give, of me, give me a list. We'll, we'll knock them off. <laughs> well, uh, we did one I mean, because you asked for an example of a society like a where you could organize example, without it. Something right? that, 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 like, a, like a, a band of thieves or, or maybe a, a law and order issue. But, but Sam, specifically, what do you want to ask uh, Stefan about, like an example? Well, uh, I mean, how would we say, for instance, I mean, uh, you, I'm sure you, you know about the Cuyahoga River in, in Cleveland, uh, which was um you know some people credit as being sort of the main impetus of uh, the, to create the EPA uh this was a river that was literally catching on fire um and i suppose um you know if we had the internet at that time we could say don't light a match near the Cuyahoga River, or uh, we could say, I mean, oh, how would Sam. it work? How would, how, no, but honestly, how would we, how would we, Stefan? I mean, okay, and this is what, there's, a, there's a good example for you, Stefan. So, so explain yeah, how. No, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, look, no, look, I mean, I'm just saying, oh, Sam, but I mean, okay, look, uh, I mean, the history of this is, is I actually think quite interesting, but so uh, we all know about this terrible smog in the 19th century in England of these satanic mills and so on. But the true history of that is actually very interesting, that there were lots of apple orchard farmers and other kinds of farmers in England when these mills were going up and belching out all this filth. And common law is very clear, and, and common law is that which is developed outside the state to just handle disputes. The state usually takes it over and makes it really complicated and ugly, but uh, the common law was very clear. If you damage my property, you owe me restitution, right? If you cut down your tree and it hits my house, you got to build me a new house. And if you throw all your smoky crap on my apples and make them unsellable, then you owe me restitution for that. And so what the um, what the farmers did was they would take all these big smokestack monsters to court. And unfortunately, the government at that time was getting a lot more tax revenue from the capitalist, uh, you know, people who were making all this crap than they were from the apple uh, farmers. And so they simply said, well, we're not, you know, we're not going to enforce that. Uh, that's excluded and, and so on. And whether they were bought off or there were campaign donations, it's the usual junk uh, in a state of society. So the state actually prevented this stuff from, from coming into being. I can guarantee you that this was unowned land, right? The great problem with uh, pollution is, is whether someone owns it or not. Uh, the government is, is the biggest polluter by far on the planet. Soviet Union, before it fell, had the most environmental regulations of any country, all of which were 
tossed by the wayside uh, because nobody actually has a direct material investment to protect anything. So I guarantee you this river was publicly owned. Nobody had, uh, you know, you, you try doing this where there are a whole bunch of cottages. I mean, you'll get lawyers crawling up your armpits faster than a rocket goes to the moon. No, so, uh, Stefan, Stefan, look, the, the idea that the river was publicly owned, no, there was a riverfront that was owned uh, that was uh, private. Uh, we see, for instance, I mean, if you want to talk about uh, privately owned rivers, uh, we see in uh, in just in mountaintop uh, coal mining that takes place in uh, West Virginia, you have uh, privately owned lakes full of sludge <laughs> that um, uh, that basically are poisoning uh, the uh, the earth around there for uh, for what will be decades. I mean, they're taking uh, parts of uh, these places and, and making them completely unlivable. But but let's get back to the Cuyahoga. I mean, there was no EPA. There was no federal government uh, that was dealing with this. Uh, the state agency was incredibly weak. Um, what what do you do? What do you do in that instance? You mean if um, if somebody's polluting the land that you have? Well, I'm saying that these ri the river was being uh, was so polluted by so many different entities uh, who were all had access to the river, who had a riverfront, who probably owned part of the river that they were putting uh, the, uh, the the sludge into, and it catches right. on fire. And none of those, I mean, unless you have a government that sets up the courts that says that this is uh, in some way illegal. I mean, because again, you can say about uh, this idea of the uh, apple orchards being uh, poisoned, but doesn't it take a, I mean, who's going to, what, what entity is going to enforce this court? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll tell you what I would do. So let's just pretend I have a, a house that's backing onto this. What was it? The Kaya, Coyote? Cuyahoga River. So let's say I've got a house in a free society. And I, you know, I know that's begging the question, but <laughs> let's just pretend that. in a free society, let's say that I have a house that's backing onto this river. And what I want to do is I want to buy insurance from some company uh, or some organization or some group that says, I want my water to be clean because I like to swim there. Right. And so I pay whatever, you know, 500 bucks a year or 200 bucks a year to make sure. Uh, and I try to get as many of my neighbors to do this as possible and so on. And, you know, we all have gatherings and we get together and figure that out. And what happens then is if junk and crap and three-headed fish and <laughs> human body parts and bicycle wheels and ever come sailing down my river, I call up the local, uh, I call them dispute resolution or organizations or DROs. I call it up and I say, listen, I'm getting all this pollution. And they leap into action. And I have an insurance policy which says, if my uh, river gets polluted, then you got to clean it or you got to move me to a really beautiful place or you got to pay me a million dollars or whatever. And what happens then is this this organization with this insurance company is going to be testing the water regularly because they have personal significant financial exposure if this pollution uh, takes root and spreads in a way that the EPA doesn't. I mean, if something goes wrong with the EPA, nobody loses their house, nobody loses their income. Usually they just get a bigger budget. So you'd have a company that would be uh, financially invested in keeping the water clean and would pay an enormous amount if, if it didn't. And then they would make sure they would say, look, if, if they go buy land upriver, make sure nobody built anything there that was going to be polluting. If somebody started building stuff there, they'd say, hey, listen, we're going to pay you some money to not do this. We'll pay you to move because, you know, it's going to be cheaper for us than if you pollute the river. And this, these overlapping insurance companies uh, are ways of ensuring. I, I want people to have financial incentives. I don't rely on altruism. I don't rely on the better angels of our natures. Uh, human beings, economically speaking, respond to incentives. And I want people who are going to make money if the river is clean are going to lose money money if the river is dirty. That's the way you set up incentives in a rational society. Well, I mean, the problems with that is, one, it's predicated on the idea that we need to have uh, clean uh, water. Uh, you need to pay for it in terms of getting insurance. But 
I got to say, just based upon what I know about insurance, that's a horrible business model. I mean, in this country, in fact, um, uh, the federal government has to uh, subsidize all the insurance for people who uh, live uh, on the coast in this uh, in this country because they cannot uh, they can't get insurance on the private market. I find it I find it impossible to imagine that an insurance company would would actually say like we are going to uh, we are going to insure you for a million dollars. Let's say I mean if we can put a, a value on that uh, that your water will be clean there uh, that these uh, finite resources that we all need in this planet um, will be clean. I don't know how you necessarily put, but uh, I'm sure they could put a dollar figure on it. Uh, and then Dow Chemical starts to dump the stuff in there. You know what? I mean, maybe Dow Chemical finds it worthwhile to pay that million dollars. Uh, aside from the idea that I think that's a horrible business model for insurance, I can't imagine that there would be anybody who would engage in something like that. Um, you, on the flip side, you also have Dow uh, that would step in and say, "This is a cost of doing business. We're going to pay so that we can light the Cuyahoga River on fire." Well, okay. First of all, the the wonderful thing about the free market, Sam, is that it's the it's the combined genius of hundreds of millions of human beings. So the great thing is that it doesn't rely upon your capacity to imagine something. Uh, that's well, the I wonderful don't. Do, thing I about also no. That's important. Speaking right? about my so limits of my imagination, imagine, my imagination also there is uh, no free market. Where I mean it's where no, no, let, let, we'll get to that argument in a second. Let's get to that Stephane, argument in a second. Uh, and second, to the free market yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. So, look, no, but I want to point out the, 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 the stating, well, I can't imagine how it can work is is irrelevant. I mean, it's irrelevant to, to the argument. I mean, it's like saying if we, no, let me finish, let me finish. If, if we, I mean, if we end slavery, yeah. You know, it's like saying, well, I can't imagine how the crops are going to be picked if we end slavery. Well, you know, if I said, well, in 100 years, there'll be these giant robot machines that will drive through the crops with these massive threshers and and uh, they will be running on the crushed tree juice from 30 million years ago. You just say, well, that's completely, but that's not a solution, but that's actually what happened. Uh, so the, the, our lack of imagination is no limit to, to what is technically possible or financially possible. Go ahead, Sam. Well, sure, of course, right? So you could then, um, right? No, he, he understand. But but as far as like Dow Chemical or whatever, well, if uh, if they're going to have to pay, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, to, they're going to move somewhere else. I mean, of course, right? I mean, if if they can equally move their plant anywhere, they're going to go to a plant uh, place where they, you know, they're going to be contained. Where and also, you know, that there's a whole community of people who really don't like pollution. I'm actually one of them. I've worked in the environmental industry for as an entrepreneur for about 15 years. I really dislike pollution, and I really dislike the degree that it's happening at the moment. But uh, I mean, Dow Chemical in a free society is going. Going to be working in an environment of people who want their environment clean and uh, people will boycott them uh, people will 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 downsell them uh, people will shun them uh, and and companies will refuse to insure them well no but but stefan that i mean uh, the the sad thing is is it doesn't take any imagination for me to know that this is not the case i'm, I'm intimately aware with how uh dow uh gets away with uh, with all sorts of these things and it's not necessarily a function of uh it is a constant battle with the epa there's a lot of uh, regulatory capture that's true but i mean you say to me your response when i say to you i can't imagine and forgive me for saying imagine i don't know that you can spell out to me the business model that uh, where an insurance company is going to to uh, going to ensure that massive corporations don't pollute. It's just a losing model. But aside from that, if I use your example about people who cannot uh, imagine the, the 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 end of slavery, 
Well, I would simply respond to you. What you need to do is imagine a government that is uh, not corrupted by these forces. Okay, so now let's look at your utopian vision, because I think that's a very important point. And I've studied this stuff for 30 years. I may have missed something completely obvious. I'm perfectly ready to be schooled on this, because, you know, I and others who think like me were called utopians all the time. But provide to me an example of a government that hasn't grown, swollen, become corrupted, gone into debt, started wars, uh, all this you know, kind of nonsense. So uh, what is sustainable uh, in your mind in, in the examples of history uh, for a state? I think you've just proven my point, is that my absence of being able to do that just shows that the idea that I could say as a point of argument, uh, the idea that this is unimaginable for both of us uh, is no argument at all. The idea that it was unimaginable for people that slavery could go away is no, is no proof, uh, Stefan, that uh, your vision is actually realizable in the real world. Well, no, no, no. Let's let's back up a second here. So uh, I'm asking you, saying, imagine a government that has not become corrupted. I was saying that. Provide to me an example that from history where your mode of argument. That's all. I was just. I was doing the same. I was. I was. So everything that you. Everything that you're suggesting has ended in failure. Every uh, every solution where it's a centrally coercive uh, argument for a state uh, in in history, you can't provide to me an example of one where that doesn't really pretty much end in catastrophe. Well, I mean, I think there are uh, plenty of states in Europe uh, that are not in catastrophe now. I mean... I'm sorry? Europe? I mean, have you seen their debt charts? Are you kidding? Well, I mean... I mean, they're 60 years after murdering 40 million of their own citizens. If you start to impose austerity on these people, uh, where is the catastrophe? You, you, you think the debt is what, illusory? Well, I think, I mean... I think uh, in certain circumstances, the debt is not as dire as, uh, certainly the American debt, uh, but is, is not as, uh, the, as, as far less of an issue than, I think, European debt. But, I mean, you're saying that simply the existence of debt is a catastrophe? Well, when the debt begins to reach over 100% of GDP uh, and when the government uh, has to force cuts on people who aren't prepared for it, which is going to harm the poor, or they print their way out of it, causing inflation, which also harms the poor, when they can no longer pay for the social programs everyone's begun to rely on. Uh, yes, I, where, where you've got youth unemployment in Greece at 50%, with Spanish unemployment in the youth at 40%. Uh, where you have massively underutilized human capital, economic capital. Uh, I mean, yes, I think that's, I mean, that this is, what, 60 years after they slaughtered 40 million of their own citizens and right all the way through the Cold War, and now they're just massively in debt. I mean, this does not seem to me like a great rolling chunk of success. Well, no, I'm not saying it's a success, but I mean, uh, you're... you're uh you're talking about, uh, I think there are certain things, frankly, that, that Greece should do. I mean, I don't want to take this to Greece. We can talk about it in terms of the United States. I mean, I definitely think that uh, we're problematic here, and I think the, the things that are more catastrophic uh, would take place under some administrations versus others. But uh, the idea, the existence of debt, I mean, there's pl plenty of examples in history where uh, people have simply defaulted. Okay, so if you default in Europe, then what happens is everyone stops lending you money. And you want to talk about a quick drip, drop off the cliff of austerity, the governments are propped up by people printing and lending the money, uh, particularly the European Central Bank. So if they default, I mean, the reason they haven't done that is that... I leave the uh, EU, but let's take this back. Which means that their, their exports are going to drop by 40% right away, and there's going to be massive unemployment, and, you know, people are going to start running out of food. This is not, to me, a high arc of a successful society. 
Well, I mean, Iceland's done uh, done well with uh, sort of uh, basically sticking it to the banks in terms of the debt. But uh, I mean, there are examples of this. Iceland, I think, is obviously one that is not ending in catastrophe. But but the point being that getting back to my original point, the reason why I say to you, imagine a government that is better, uh, is because the the argument that people couldn't imagine slavery going away, and of course, of course, there were people who could. I mean. Uh, uh, but the idea that perhaps I, in a debate, would have a, a tough time imagining uh, big uh, uh, tractors, yes, that's the case. Um, I like to think I would have argued, uh, take a little bit less in terms of profits uh, and uh, just simply pay your workers on some level. But th that is not an argument. I keep asking you about this, uh, what I perceive as a utopian vision, and obviously others have said that to you in the past, and you've been obviously working on this for 30 years, even prior to the internet. Um, so what, give me an example, like what is that in real terms? What does that look like? How do we get from where we are now to there? If it's going to, so it's, is this it, going to require it's, a it's, mass... It's, Guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject for a second. I've been pretty quiet. I've been pretty good because you yeah. guys are fascinating and you're just you're, you're all filled with facts. But like we 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 planned on talking about say something like an entitlement, like a social security or a Medicare. So like taking that model, and I'm sure that I'm gonna let Stefan you go first about like how do you approach that from a volunteerism or a, a capitalism society? How do you deal with the elderly who can't afford to live? And then Sam, I'm gonna allow you to try to defend the system, which I'm sure Stefan is about to uh, take down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as trying to find a free society, just before we dip into that, it's as simple as looking in the mirror. I mean, um, Sam doesn't use violence to get what he wants. I don't use violence. I'm well, you, you probably do, because that, there's no way you could afford that much gel without shoplifting. But uh, most of us do not use. It's just envy. You know that, right? <laughs> But most of us do not use violence to, to get what we want. And the vast majority of people I've ever met in my whole life do not use violence to get what they want. With the sole exception that 80 to 90% of parents still spank their children. That's perhaps another topic. But most people, when they're adults, they don't use violence to get what they want. Uh, with the exception of people who use the large canon of political power to, to get things done. Now, as far as uh, Social Security goes and so on, um, yeah, I, I think that it's very important that uh, people live out their old age in, you know, with as much dignity as possible and, uh, and uh, with, with access to, to cheap and effective health care and so on. And to that end, I think it's very important uh, to have as wealthy a society as possible and um, you know, the more freedom generally, the higher rate of growth um, uh, of the economy to give uh, you know, as much incentive to saving as possible, which means not have a centralized bank that keeps mucking about with the interest rates and screwing up the economy that way. Uh, we want um, uh, to get rid of the idea of corporations uh, so that uh, corporations and, and the amount of money that gets herded into the stock market literally at gunpoint, you know, the 401k plans and uh, forced savings plans and other kinds of ways in which you have to invest or the government will take your money creates a really weird kind of really Lance Armstrong pumped up <laughs> weird economy uh, where you've got too much money chasing too few stock dollars which really means that you can make a lot of money making short-term gain long-term pain decisions as a capitalist and having been uh, in that world it's uh, know this sort of fairly firsthand so you want to have a stable economy with high interest rates, encourage savings for people. You want to have a system where people are rewarded for good health behaviors, of course, because 70% or so of people's healthcare issues are lifestyle choice related, if not directly 
caused by lifestyle choices. So, yeah, you want to have a system where people are encouraged to to save and and to to live well and live healthy. It should be pretty easy then for people. And also, people should you know, I generally encourage you know, be part of a community, be part of a church, be part of a lions club, be part of some community. Don't live too much in isolation. Sort of a modern thing. So that if you do run into trouble that you can't handle by yourself, that you have a community to fall back on. Stay close to your family, stay close to, to everyone around so that you have a buffer. But the idea that some centralized coercive agency is going to take money at gunpoint from you for your life and then magically return it to you uh, in your old age uh, in, in good condition is, I mean, factually completely uh, false, right? The money was taken from everyone for Social Security for, what, 60 years now. And there's nothing in the Social Security kitty other than a bunch of dusty IOUs, which is really just a noose around the economic neck of the next generation. So what we have now is pretty catastrophic. Uh, and I think that that comes because the use of violence may produce short term gains. But in the long run, uh, it always makes things fall apart. Well, first off, the first off, Social Security has been an incredibly successful program. I mean, I'd, I'm sure maybe there are uh, more successful programs than Social Security, but um, I'm not aware of them. And the idea that the $2.5 trillion in the trust fund, first off, Hey, you want to say that it's just IOUs, it would be the first time in the history of the United States where they would default on uh, their obligations in that respect. Um, I don't know really that, uh, you know, in this society, it's basically a piece of paper that is earning interest and they're paying the interest every year. And even if, even once the trust fund expires, Social Security will still pay out. Uh, seventy-eight percent of its guaranteed benefits uh, before, uh, until one can see um, until basically our kids are uh, are talking about uh, their little kids, little kids, their grandkids, uh, and to the extent that you wanted to close that budget gap, it's it's quite easy uh, in terms of um, uh, just raising the the cap on Social Security taxes. But it's a wildly successful program. the The idea that there's just a uh, a file cabinet with IOUs, like uh, which was George Bush's famous line, um, is is ridiculous. I mean, to, to the extent that I say I have something in the bank, I don't they don't have my money in there. They simply have a, a, a a ledger that says that uh, this amount of money is Sam Cedars, um, and if they don't give it to me, then I, you know, obviously I go. Uh, I guess people either stop going to that bank in your world, although I'm screwed out of my money. But in 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 this world, uh, I rely on the monopoly of of force of the government to say hand over his his money. Um, and so, but the the fact remains is that the money is there. The Social Security is. Um, Probably the uh, the the uh, the most imaginable thing in the world. It's the one thing that people can count on uh, in this country, anyways, uh, to be there at the very least. Like I say, seventy-eight percent of benefits starting in twenty thirty-three uh, until our kids are grandkids. I mean, so. Well, I certainly will agree with Sam that it is about the most successful government, government program that can be imagined. On that, I think we are exactly on the same side of the fence. Uh, of course, when the government takes money from you for your retirement over the course of a 40-year career, they spend it. They spend it and they replace the money that they took from you with treasuries, with which is the promise to tax your kids to pay for your retirement. So they take your money, which means you can't save for your own retirement, or at least it's much harder to. They mess up the economy uh, so that uh, you've got massive stock booms and busts and housing booms and busts, which makes it really hard for people to have any rational prediction within the economy. And then when you retire, 
there's no money to pay you. The, 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 the treasuries are simply a promise to tax the next generation. They're not actually assets. The government doesn't produce anything. The government only has the power to tax and print and borrow. It doesn't actually produce anything in the way that, you know, a private company does or semi-private company these days. So I agree. They, they took money from people. They spent it uh, to buy votes or do whatever they wanted. Maybe they spent it to, um, you know, bleach nuns habits. Maybe it was really good stuff. It doesn't matter. But the money is gone. And what's left is the promise to tax uh, children. Now, the problem, of course, is this is a massive transfer from... Mo yes, of course. Yes, I mean, no, that's no, no, exactly no, the course, way Social Security you... was designed. It was designed where current-day workers are essentially will be paying for future generations and, and current generations in uh, in retirement. That's exactly how but it was designed. Think, I think, Stephen, what you have to do is you have to, you have to dismantle the fear that Sam has that, that, that old people are going to die on the streets. I'm not sure. Well, no, I, I'd rather, rather, I don't want to dismantle his fear. I'd rather just, just deal with the facts of the situation. Uh, first of all, that's not how Social Security was designed because there was no increased taxes on the young to pay for Social Security in the beginning. Social Security was supposed to be that you give the money to your government, it puts it in some place safe and then gives it back to you when you're old. What happened was you, the money was taken forcibly from people, it was spent on stuff, and now we have this incredibly regressive tax for the most part where the young who have few assets and unfortunately Fortunately, because of more government involvement, massive uh, student debts and diminished job opportunities. I mean, as we know, in the great heyday of expanded government power, income disparities have increased, wages have stagnated and fallen at the same time as we're looking at about a half a million dollars per household of debt piled onto people by the government. And now what's happened is all the young people coming out of college with big debts, fewer prospects, lower wages now have to be taxed to pay for what is statistically the richest generation in history's retirement. It's This is completely unjust. Uh, I, You know, look, I agree with you to the extent that we should lift the cap uh, you know, right now it's at $110,000, and I think that uh, the very wealthy in this country are getting away with it. Um, but um, the fact of the matter is, it keeps two thirds of our, our elderly out of poverty. It will keep two thirds of this uh, younger generation out of poverty when they are senior citizens. Uh, it is the most reliable and effective anti-poverty uh, program, like I say, maybe perhaps in history. Uh, and it, um, I mean, these these are just the facts, and you can speculate that in the future that there's somehow going to be a problem, but there won't be unless all of a sudden everybody just stops working and paying their taxes, which I, you know, I mean, I guess um, is uh, imaginable, but uh, highly unlikely in my estimation. So yes, it was designed, in fact, to ex to function exactly like this. Uh, that's why when, when, when uh, pensioners started getting money, there were less people paying into the system, and they had to ramp it up slowly over the course of, uh, of 10 12, 15 years um, as as they started to add more people to it. I mean, you can question the validity of uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, but it would be the first time that we've ever defaulted. And yes, in the future, um, we are in some way uh, counting on continuing to take taxes from members of society. I mean, uh, you know, I, you and I have a disagreement as to whether or not that's oppressive. I still uh, have don't have a sense outside of eBay of how uh, the society works, um, how, frankly, even currency would work uh, without, um, uh, without having a, some type of, of central um, uh, for, uh, body that has a monopoly on force, uh, uh, I guess, within the context of any given society. But I'm, I'm sure you've studied it. Go ahead, Stefan. 
Well, I mean, there's there's a lot there. I, I guarantee you that Social Security was not sold to the first generation with saying, we're going to tax you like crazy and we're going to spend all the money on stuff now. There's going to be no money there, but we're going to tax your kids to pay for your retirement. It was not. It was not it's an insurance program. So this is not how the program was designed. It's an this insurance is just how politics program. takes over. Guys, no, we have social we have insurance program. No, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's not an insurance program. No, it's only a Ponzi scheme, Stefan, right, so, if there's uh, but, no but one else on. so, paying into the system. And that will not happen. There will never be a time where there will be well, no all Ponzi more schemes invest- last until nobody pays into the system. No, Ponzi all schemes, Ponzi schemes last, last until right. people stop paying into the system. Hey, hey guys, no. we, we, I don't want to. I don't want to push to a to a topic too quick here. I think that you guys have made some really good points on both sides of the fence here. Um, there's a lot of comments that are kind of flowing below the video a little bit. And yeah, let, let's hear from the uh, listeners. We could just approach one. Uh, Ski ball 100 points is out there, and he's yelling about prisons. So first to you, Stefan, I guess a lot of the commenters are asking, um, like, what's the libertarian answer to, to prisons and law enforcement and kind of the anarchist, the capitalist uh, model? It's asteroid mining, baby, all the way. No, I don't know. <laughs> Look, I mean, crime is, is a huge plague in society, but crime is actually one of these things that science and psychology is pretty good at knowing how to solve. We just don't have a mechanism which is so frustrating in place to solve it. Criminals come out of uh, abusive childhood. They come out of uh, usually physical, uh, verbal, sexual abuse within childhood, which is, of course, distressingly common prevalent, right? I mean, according to the statistics of self-reporting, you know, one in three girls and one in five boys experiences some form of molestation as a child and, and you know, spanking, as I said, uh, and which is not the same, exactly the same as what's called rampant child abuse. But the aggression against the young is, is huge and problematic. We have incredibly dysfunctional societies uh, with, with the single moms and ghettos, and, and this is the same thing here in Canada as well with the native uh, communities, just messed up stuff that ke- keeps on producing dysfunctional people. We don't have a system in place at the moment where uh, there is strong incentives to deal with or prevent aggression within the home, which leads to criminality, not inevitably, but, you know, not like, you know, it's not like everyone who's abused becomes a criminal, but at least to my knowledge, just about everyone who is a criminal was abused. Uh, so in a free society, it's all about prevention, not cure. And in a free society, of course, uh, you would have uh, uh, ways in which you could uh, have financial incentives for parents to parent well, right? I mean, if you want insurance for your kid's behavior, then you have to take a couple of these parenting classes or at least prove that you know the concepts. Uh, you can see in brain scans that children are being abused because it, it distorts, you know, the amygdala, the neofrontal cortex, all changes based upon child abuse. You would scan for that and you would provide remedial courses uh, or you would face problems within your community. Uh, schools would find it much easier to educate children who were brought up in a peaceful, positive and rational manner. And therefore, if your child wasn't behaving well, your school fees would increase, but they'd offer you a discount if you took some parenting not, classes. Not, not you would have you, systems in place where the costs of that. You, but are there prisons in, in, in a libertarian society? And then we'll go right to Sam. Well, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I mean, one thing that could happen is if you do something significantly harmful to people, I imagine that there would be uh, some sort of dispute resolution organization that would, you know, probably a group of them, like the way that visa companies all process each other's bills. They would all work together the same way that cell phone companies transmit each other's data. They would all work together. And if somebody was found guilty of some significant crime, they would have to pay restitution. If they didn't pay restitution, they would be ostracized from that society and taken out of the equation. That, I mean, or, or and, and to pay off that restitution, they may go to, I don't know, they may go to a prison. I, I mean, have no idea how it would work. But in the absence of child abuse, criminality would be, you know, like getting struck by lightning. It would just be so rare and so preventable that it wouldn't really be a factor in society. Sam's shaking his head no. Well, 
No, I I agree with um, with the idea that in the absence of child abuse and if children, you know, uh, aside from perhaps any type of uh, genetic uh, distortions or um, you know problems with chromosomes that may uh, cause that, I think in the main, what Stefan is talking about is uh, is probably the case. But short of a, a magic wand, y you haven't really <laughs> outlined how this is going to happen. We have communities that are going to do brain scans on the these kids and then you're going to get some type of financial incentive uh, you used examples of telecommunications uh, companies ca using each other's wires and all of which has been uh, completely um, uh, made possible because of government regulation and um, and, and governments uh, you know sort of coming in and using their monopoly of force to provide easements in, in situations so that everyone could get uh, electricity or, or phone services um, and uh, in some instances, which I disagree with, in some instances, in which I do agree with. I'm not. I'm not saying there's a panacea for anything, but from an operational standpoint, um, th this is the sort of the problem I think with the society that you're talking about. Now, I personally feel that um, much of what goes on in this country, in terms of the um, the prison industrial complex, uh, is a is a is a racket. Uh, I think uh, the it's drug war is a tr is a tremendous racket, and I think the cost is uh, to society is in is uh, immeasurable in terms of well, it's measurable in terms of money, it's trillions of dollars, but it's immeasurable in terms of what it does in terms of laying waste to people's lives. Um, but but sadly, uh, the 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 vision that you're outlining is simply one that I don't think is in any way realistic and and when it comes to the actual rubber meeting the road of your proposals uh, they're they're glossed over I look I agree if we had the capacity to make sure that every parent did not abuse their child um, we could we could certainly eliminate a lot of uh, I think the sort of the the dysfunction in society uh, but I I just don't think that uh, that's possible. I mean, I think there's also, you know, I, I also like to think that some of the parents or the, uh, the, um, uh, the pedophiles um, are, are not, it's not just a question of if you paid me money, I would stop. I think that there are some people who are simply damaged and uh, they're either damaged psychologically and I suppose you could go back generations. I guess in your world, we would have to have some type of, um, of slow transition to the brain scan where the community incentivizes you not to abuse your child uh, and somehow we would stop this cycle but um, but frankly it, it all seems and I and I say this with all due respect because you you've clearly studied this stuff for many years it all seems completely fantastical and I get that there are other things in society that have seemed fantastical but surely there are some things that are in fact fantastical uh, you know I mean surely there are some things that just because people couldn't imagine someone walking on the moon uh, 75 years ago doesn't mean that the vision you're outlining uh, is possible because I don't think that it's that, that there's any real sort of um, operational aspects to this that you've been able to describe. Good. Stefan, let's give you a chance to defend. Please go ahead. 
Well, I'm I'm not sure. I feel I'm in this um, no true Scotsman logical fallacy where uh, you know I'm given 35 seconds to answer and then criticized for not pointing a complete society in the future that's very different from our own society. Yeah, of course. Look, I'm just a guy who would really like the non-aggression principle to be extended within the home, to be extended across society, to be ex- extended overseas. It's a multi-generational change. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. It is a multi-generational change, and it starts, I believe, in applying the non-aggression principle within the family. Uh, I promote and am very strong advocate of um, non-aggressive ways of parenting, and I've got had dozens of experts on the show to to make that case. Um, but it's not unthinkable in any way, shape, or form. If you look back at history, the way that children were treated in the ancient Aztec world, where they were regularly slaughtered, look at the treatment of children in the Bible, for heaven's sakes. I mean, it's just monstrous. And if you look at the treatment, um, a psychohistorian Lloyd DeMars has had a reward out there of, I think, $10,000 to anyone who can find an example of a child before the 18th century whose parents would not be immediately arrested for child abuse, for doing what the society considered normal. Now we have societies where spanking is almost, well, it's certainly outlawed and it's very rare. And and we have ways of dealing with children that are much more rational and positive. I mean, there's a huge amount of change that has occurred. So the idea that this is unthinkable when it's gone from like... All under the auspices of governments. Yes, and it rains under governments too, but government doesn't cause the rain. I mean, you've got to get your cause and effect straight here, right? So uh, there's been a huge movement uh, to, towards better t- treatment of children. So saying that that can continue, uh, I think, is not, is not at all unthinkable. Saying that we can get rid of the government before people become mentally healthier as a result of better changes, I think that's unthinkable too. Saying we can erase the government by snapping our fingers tomorrow is unthinkable as well. But, uh, of course, as a philosopher, I try to take the long-term view and to have a goal that's more about, you know, let's repeal X or Y in the next election or let's impose X or Y in the next election, which to me is just fiddling while Rome burns, which is a historically inaccurate metaphor, but I thought I'd throw it in. I, th- I think that's, I think that's obviously, I mean, I think that's um, more than valid. And from a philosophical standpoint, I think that's, that's wonderful. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter myself, and I, um, I think uh, I suspect that our parenting techniques are very similar. Um, and you know, when that day comes where uh, we've been able to obtain, uh, attain, and you know, obviously we've been able to progress this far under governments with the way that we treat our children. I mean, um, in this country, uh, it was a government that imposed child labor laws uh, on society, which I think had um, a, a quite a bit of benefit and provided, you know, uh, there are some instances where, you know, perhaps uh, maybe kids on farms should be able to work when they're a little bit younger. I don't know. But um, I think on the main, it was a great push forward. And in, in this, our government provides uh, food and protection for uh, children in the meantime and probably increases the odds of those kids who can actually um, uh, deal with the uh, abuse that they have dealt with. Maybe maybe very small, but obviously we've seen progress through generations, like you've said, under under the auspices of government. My, my problem with, um, with the philosophy of libertarianism is that there's too many uh, of your adherents and uh, not necessarily of yours per se, but uh, you know, on my show, I invite libertarians to call in. Well, um, uh, you'd be surprised. I I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that because many, many people have told me that we should debate, but libertarians call into my program all the time. And I've debated other libertarians on, on other libertarian radio shows. And they want to take these, uh, these ideas from the sort of philosophical uh, realm uh, and actually impose them on our society in a 
rather large way. Uh, they want to see what they call less government. Now, I don't know what that even means, less government. And uh, they, they use these terms, more freedom. I don't know what that means. Uh, I know that if I got uh, health insurance in the same way that you did in Canada, I would feel a lot more freedom in terms of what I need to do for work. Uh, you know, I'm facing COBRA payments uh, starting in January, and uh, they're going to cost me a tremendous <laughs> amount of money. And I, I, you know, it really has inhibited uh, my my life in a, a fundamental and real way. Uh, so uh, I would uh, much rather, you know, uh, some type of Medicare for all in this country. And so uh, that, to me, would would enhance uh, my freedom. We really going to do Canadian healthcare? Okay, I can do that. Well, we do I Canadian don't really healthcare. know uh, Canadian healthcare. No, no, it's worth it because I mean, I would love everything to, looks good. I would love to buy on, uh, the Medicare. side of the fence, right? Well, look, I mean, uh, the the question of, of healthcare obviously is big and complex. Maybe we can reconvene for that. And, and I just do give a short thing, and then we'll go to our, our listeners because I really want to get some feedback from the people watching. But um, healthcare was, you know, there were these great worker societies at the turn of the last century. They're called friendly societies. They lasted sort of up until this, the end of the First World War, where workers got together and they pooled all their resources and they bought uh, uh, healthcare for, for everyone. And uh, it was really uh, fantastic. You could get a year's worth of healthcare for a day or two's wages. Um, and what happened was the doctors were really unhappy that their services kept being bid down by these collective groups of workers. So they went to the government and said, we need licenses, we need restrictions, we need controls. And since the wedding of the medical industrial government complex, um, got, costs have simply gone through the roof. I mean, even in the 1960s, a hospital stay would cost you a couple of days pay and insurance was pretty cheap. But what's happened, of course, is, is uh, as doctors have uh, gotten more involved in government and as government has gotten more involved in healthcare, costs have just gone up and up. You know, in the U.S., like more than 50 cents of every dollar is spent uh, by the government in healthcare, uh, governments licensed doctors, governments licensed nurses, healthcare practitioners of every kind, and uh, governments have hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations. Governments run this crazy tort system where you can get sued for putting a dot wrong on a form. I mean, it's just a really bad situation, but I think that we can't reasonably say that as government involvement has grown and grown to push all the blame of that upon the vestiges of the free market i think is is unfair but anyway if if we wanted to get well, to some i know that uh, medicare medicare is far more efficient than private insurance in this company in terms of uh in this country in terms of how much uh, every dollar is spent on on actually delivering care and and the the cost of medical care has grows at a slower rate under medicare than it does in the private insurance market very much because it's that same process of people banding together and driving down costs, uh, which is why I would love to see uh, Medicare for all in this country, or at the very least an opportunity to buy in uh, at an earlier age, uh, if possible, but uh, it seems unlikely. In which the, means in you'll just get time. rationing by the state instead of by the market. But anyway, so we, we got some stuff from the listeners. Do we have questions or comments? He muted himself, so I'll, I'll just pretend that I'm him. Let me just go over to this. Well, Wait, I, I think you're right about that. But, uh, you know, I think your point about rationing by the state instead of the free market is, is true. Um, I think there's, there's, uh, there's, there's definitely a problem there, uh, except for that seems inevitable. Uh, and frankly, when we see rationing by the market, um, it is far more profit-driven than it would be under a government. Now, uh, you could argue that it, it, it opens up the opportunity for some form of corruption and whatnot and corporations uh, influencing more power. But, I mean, if we have the ability um, to uh, to diminish uh, government, I would certainly like to uh, diminish the the rights of these corporations, which you very... Um, 
very and correctly in my in my uh, in, in my mind is a is a is a creation of government and therefore can also be ended by by government yeah and i mean of course uh, I've, I've heard you speak about this on on other shows and i i mean we might as well well our host um i don't know changes his suit maybe he was sweating uh but i mean i think something that we can agree with um uh, although i'd probably still go further than you would is i mean that the, the, this monstrous sole leprosy of the military industrial complex is is one of the most damaging things that happens to any i mean it, to me it's a kind of tragic cycle just to keep it really brief and i've you know, seen this happen before it happened with france it happened with germany it happened with england it's happening with america where you get some little bits of less interference in people's right to voluntary and, and do business with each other. And this produces a lot of growth. This happened in, in uh, England in the sort of 17th century. They, they were the first to experiment with free trade and getting rid of all of the crazy limitations on crop use and sales of the medieval period. So they got, oh, look, we got all this money. Woo! You know, and then what happens is the government says, ooh, lots of money. Let's start spending. It's like, you know, Greece, when they get to hook onto the credit rating of Germany, let's start spending. And usually what that happens is that you start an empire because you've got all this money from the free market. And then the empire uh, reaches over the free market, collapses on top of it, and you end up really crushing that which fed you. And this is why freedom is such a challenge. I, I remind libertarians of this all the time. They think that, well, first of all, they, they think you can go back to 1776 and that was a great society, which I guess it was if you weren't black or a child or, or a native or a woman. Uh, I mean, that's not, you know, any kind of positive, uh, uh, you know, role model for me. Uh, but um, also they think if you go back, it won't just go forward the same way. As long as you have a state, if the state is small, then you get more freedom, more economic growth, which means a state can then hoover that up and start an empire. And if the state is big, uh, everyone's miserable. So anyway, I think our, did our dude unmute? I wish I could use. Anyway, sorry, if you wanted to mention something on that. But I agree um, that this military industrial complex is just monstrous. And the biggest arms sales in the world come from Western governments. And it's just, I mean, imagine the police arming your... Well, we've seen that too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, we're in agreement with that. I mean, I think ultimately for me, the, the answer to a, a broken or flawed government isn't no government. It is to uh, work and put, uh, and this is what I like to think I do at least, um, uh, put your energy towards uh, fixing it and making it uh, better. I mean, in this uh, country, we've certainly seen where, you know, where the, the pendulum has swung in a certain direction, and my hope is that it, it can change about 40 years ago, frankly, right around the time of the Cuyahoga River uh, catching on fire uh, for the final time. It had done it multiple times before, and the uh, development of the EPA um, in this country, uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce uh, commissioned a white paper by Lewis Powell called, uh, which is popularly known as the Powell Memo, and it uh, developed uh, essentially a, a network of, of uh, reactionaries and corporations who then um, made a huge push to roll back government influence to um, Powell ended up uh, ultimately uh, sitting on the um, uh, Sitting on the, uh, uh, the 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 Supreme Court uh, was appointed by by Richard Nixon, and since that time we've seen a, a stagnation of wages in this country. We've seen a dissolution of unions in this country. Uh, we have seen an increase in poverty in this country. Uh, we have seen an ever creeping regulatory capture in this uh, in this country, mm. uh, and it's been very problematic. And um, I, you know, I guess it's possible at, uh, um, at one stage we get to the point where uh, I see the, the only solution is in some way to 
I mean, I don't, uh, you know, again, it's may, my, perhaps my failure of imagination um, as to a, uh, a sort of the, this, this uh, alternate solution. But in the meantime, the, uh, the idea is to, is to fight back against this. And um, ultimately, again, I think I was alluding to this earlier, that the, the, the concept of smaller government um, really, in my mind, opens up a vacuum for more corporate ability to uh, to corrupt that government. We see it uh, on a local level. Uh, we have two states right now where there's a lot of people who are protesting against the XL pipeline, which has uh, been deemed a common carrier, although it's not carrying anything to the United States. It's just carrying stuff through the United States. And uh, so the state of Texas was uh, much uh, rather easy for them to buy off, and now uh, they've taken people's property through through eminent domain, which I'm sure I would imagine you have a problem with. Well, eminent domain, um, yeah, I mean, it's just taking stuff uh, through force, right? I mean, less governments, I mean, this is the thing, right? So people think that voluntarism means no rules. What it means is no rulers. What it means is no centralized coercive agency within society. The problem, of course, is I think it limits our imagination. I don't mean yours. I think you're a very imaginative guy. It limits our imagination in solving problems. You know that old saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And our solution to every social problem seems to be these days, either pass a law or find some new agency. Oh, we've got problems with security. Let's have another Department of Homeland Security like we didn't have the CIA and the FBI and the military and the, you know, <laughs> all of this stuff. It just seems to be, let's, you know, if we have a problem, let's have uh, more government. Um, I think the idea that the U U.S. government has gotten smaller over the past 40 years, I just, I think is not, not correct. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, corporations are nasty, but, man, they the unfunded liabilities that the U.S. has taken on are, are upwards of $70 trillion on a $15 trillion a year economy. Uh, the, the corporations, you know, they're nasty in some ways for sure, and, and I, I don't like them. I'm sorry? What, what are you including in that $70 trillion worth of unfunded liabilities? I mean, I've heard that, that number before, and as far as I know, it projects uh, Social Security and Medicare out by 70 years to the end of the century but it presumes that nobody's going to be paying into the system during that time. No, this is, um, um, I'll just look it up here, but my, uh, the way I've, I've read about it is that the unfunded liabilities are everything that the government has promised that it does not have the money uh, based upon current projections to pay well, for. I know it what that means. That, but that if, there's no, if there's no money coming into the system, that's including the money coming into the system. Uh, you I'm know, sorry, actually, it says here $84 trillion, but, uh, but but eighty four trillion. I mean, what does that include? I mean, the the uh, there's only twelve percent, fifteen percent of the U.S. budget is uh, discretionary spending. So in other words, uh, the the rest of the budget is made up either in defense or in Social Security and Medicare. And uh, the idea that we have a seventy trillion or eighty four trillion dollar unfunded liability, um, I you we can throw out that number. But unless you can tell me what it is, I mean, because I've seen it as adding up the liabilities that we project for Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, and it presumes that no one's paying in. I, I know what a liability is. I know what an unfunded, unfunded liability is. But um, I've, I've looked into that number, and it's, I've seen it on right-wing sites. But I, I, unless you can tell me what it is. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, uh, it would also include things like um, uh, public sector pension plans that are uh, unfunded because, of course, they took big hits uh, in the financial recent the recent sort of financial crash, uh, and yeah, but include I think uh, I think the healthcare ones are are fairly substantial. Uh, but let me just uh, look it up. 
most of the state pensions at this point have recovered not totally but significantly and you're right it was a function of uh not so much that they were underfunded as much as they took a hit in the stock market now it's quite possible the stock market doesn't continue to grow at the the you know the supposed whatever it is six or eight percent annual rate uh, but the those are those are state pensions for the most part um, and uh, yeah it's a function of the economy I mean if we have a if we have an economy that functions like the economy is functioning now for the next 70 years of that horizon of that uh, those underfunded uh, liabilities yes we're gonna have problems I would agree with that all right, so the federal government faces unfunded liabilities totaling $84 trillion, with more than $30.3 trillion owed to public debt holders, federal employees, and current retirees. Oh, yeah, okay, so it's public debt holders, right? So people who got treasuries and all that, bonds and all that. And uh, Social Security and Medicaid benefits. Um, so overall, the fiscal imbalance is but equal that, to that, 5 that, points. That presumes that people aren't going to be paying into Social Security and Medicaid, and that's a fallacy. No, no, un yeah. Unless everybody no, shows up at age 65. No, I mean, I can tell you. I can tell you uh, almost verbatim what the Social Security Trust uh, uh, Fund report is, and I can tell you that it is completely uh, funded between uh, until 2033, and then at that point, just based on the revenue, it does not come out of the general fund. It is completely separate uh, system. Just based on the revenue it takes in, it's 6%, uh, 6 percent, six point uh, whatever, one percent on uh, worker, six point one percent on employer. That will pay itself seventy-eight percent well, of promised benefits. But it's it's only funded. It, you can only call it funded if you don't count a treasury. If you count a treasury as an asset rather than a liability, but the, the trust fund is going to run out in five or six years. It doesn't matter. This is a. This is a. I mean, if you want to say that the treasury bills are are you know are just worthless pieces of paper, it, then you're at seventy eight percent of benefits just based upon the amount of people who are working and paying into the system. I didn't say that. I said they were a liability. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand that, but you asked me to get you the facts. So in 2011, the federal government reported owing $10.2 trillion in public debt, accrued federal employee pension and other retirement benefits of $5.8 trillion, and other federal liabilities of $1.5 trillion, totaling $17.5 trillion in liabilities, or more than 117% uh, of GDP. But that's, that's owing. if you assume yeah, that nobody's going to pay taxes in the future. Yes, that's, well, let me, just, let me just keep going, because you're absolutely right about that here. When Social Security and Medicare payments are owed to current, uh, sorry, owed to current retirees are counted, $12.8 trillion is added to federal liabilities, bringing the total to $30.3 trillion, or 200% of GDP. Ooh, isn't this so exciting? What a great show to read, show, <laughs> read blogs. I'll read, uh, read news on the, online. But let's um, add the remaining expected obligations to non-retirees for Social Security and Medicare, along with other, other federal obligations, and the tally rises to nearly $84 uh, trillion. Uh, if policy changes aren't made to meet these obligations in the long run, and this is a nonpartisan uh, report, at least according to this um, this news uh, site, the government would have to raise taxes by 30% from its historic 50-year average of 18% uh, of uh, GDP. Um, the growth of the economy will slow as a result, making it more difficult to meet the federal government's unfunded obligations, the report uh, states. So, um, yeah, I mean... Who put out this they, report? They, uh, I will tell you in just a sec. I uh, mean... The federal, look, this is... The idea the, that a nonpartisan National Center for Policy Analysis. So, I mean, it? I don't know about them. It's called the Nonpartisan National Center for Policy Analysis. This isn't my, well, I just happen to type it in partisan. and whatever, right? They yeah, yeah, yeah I know. But the fact of the matter is, Social Security, 
Social Security, uh, you, you may have an argument that there's a liability, but the only way that it's not uh, funded is if you pr assume that people are not going to be paying into Social Security until they get 65. I mean, only retirees get, well, there's a disability aspect of Social Security, but uh, the, the great uh, um, uh, majority of it is for retirees. You can't be 65 or 67 and retire unless you've been working during that period of time. And so uh, the idea that it's underfunded is is uh, is a complete misunderstanding of the way that Social Security works. Uh, it is. But, but sorry, the argument against that would be to say or to point out that people don't pay into Social Security. What happens is they pay into a general fund. The government spends that and then replaces what's in Social Security or what was paid for Social Security with with the Treasuries, which are a liability. I mean, I suppose uh, you could argue that at some point, and you could argue that um, that people are are looking for more services than they're getting out of government, uh, and so the government is raiding the Social Security uh, trust fund. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that statutorily in this country, uh, the 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 trust fund uh, is uh, the the Social Security is does not come out of uh, general revenues, uh, and it's it is. I mean, uh, to the extent that the U.S. government borrows uh, against Social Security, I mean, it uh, has the same value as anybody who buys Treasury bonds. I mean, we hear quite a bit in this country about how we're going to owe all this money to China. Well, uh, frankly, why are we, why are we concerned about owing this, money, uh, owing this money to China uh, if, um, if we're, we're, we're afraid that we're not going to pay ourselves? I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> buys Treasury bonds. Yeah, I mean... Oh, is he back? All this money to China. Well, uh, Frank, good job, I'm moderator. That. Yeah, actually, we we, we just said I just moderating myself I mean, with a watermelon. You know, you can't have it both ways. Is he back? Uh, I think he uh, muted himself. We can't hear you. <laughs> I mean, so, uh, you know, th those figures, I've, like I said, well, look, I, I hope that it, and they're not, um, uh, you know, they, they're counting the liability, but they're, they're, yes, they're underfunded because those people haven't reached age 65 and haven't been working for 40 years yet. But uh, presumably they will if they're ever going to retire. Is he, is All right, gentlemen, I, I think we've, uh, we've circled back. Oh. <laughs> I think we'll settle this entitlement argument this evening. You know, uh, this is uh, this has been a very Pond. stressful, um, a very stressful interview for you, a conversation, because clearly you've lost your hair has all come out. It's this. I, it's <laughs> yes. been terribly stressful. Yeah. And I, I, I don't have anything left. You know, you're just clawing at it like a cat in a bag. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think it's about time to wrap this up. Uh, Do we have I'll any? Uh, I'm happy to take if. Uh, uh, the only other question. I don't know if we had any yearning burnings from the audience. I'm happy uh, to answer a question or two. Uh, the question was, how do we turn towards non-aggression without regressing into statism? Uh, gently, with a rose between your teeth and some heavy rap playing in the background. Um, well, in my, in my sort of argument, and I, I recognize that, you know, ideas can change the world, but it's a little bit like a slow breeze turning a super tanker. It does take its time. Um, my focus, and I'm sure that we can end on a note of agreement here, I, I think that, as you said, Sam, you, I'm a stay-at-home dad with a three-year-old daughter. Your daughter is seven, and I'm sure we raised them reasonably and peacefully. Um, the non-aggression principle is great to talk about when it comes to how to organize society as a whole. It's certainly not imminent <laughs> in that way, you know, it's all revolutions, it's always earlier than you think. But there's so much that we can do in our own lives to, uh, to apply 
philosophical principles of reason, negotiation, non-aggression. We can do it in our personal lives. We can do it in our business lives. We can do it in our online lives. We can do it with friends. We can do it with our pets. <laughs> we can do it with whoever, where we make a commitment to, to not use aggression, to not use violence, to not use uh, uh, you know, the verbal aggression or whatever, we can make that commitment. That we can achieve. You know, that old statement from the environmental movement, I think is fantastic. Think globally, act locally. We can all make a commitment to nonviolence. That will not change the world tomorrow. But, you know, like the tortoise and the hare, it is those slow steps that I think will bring us to a world where um, we can say goodbye to organizing society as we have inherited from a most brutal history around a central coercive agency and look at finding ways to resolve social problems without the appeal to force that is innate uh, in the call to government. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I agree uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, most of that. I would say also in the meantime, though, um, I think we... Um, we need to uh, attempt to influence our government um, and uh, make it more, uh, make it, make sure that it is uh, providing more justice. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, from my perspective, economic justice, uh, and that uh, we need to broaden our perspective of what uh, freedom is to to live fulfilling lives. Uh, that it, we can actually be uh, gain more freedom in some respects uh, by uh, having a government, at least in this country, uh, it's it's happened to a certain extent in Canada, uh, but recognize that. Uh, Healthcare is is uh, should be a right in a, in a civilized uh, society that should not be contingent upon the luck that you have based upon what zip code uh, you were born into, uh, who your parents were, and what advantages they had and their parents before them. Uh, it should not be a function of your ability to pay, and uh, neither, frankly, should a good uh, good clean air and uh, clean water and. Um, uh, real food uh, should not uh, should not be a function of uh, exclusively of your your ability to uh, to pay because we all know that you know in this country anyways uh, we can predict how much money you're going to have uh, with an incredibly um, uh, accurate rate just based upon literally what zip code you're born in uh, and it's and that's a shame. Uh, we need to uh, expand uh, the the opportunity for people, and not just the opportunity, but frankly, in some instances, the outcomes. So, all right, love the ideas all around. And thanks to Polly Pop, and thanks to Sam. It was a real pleasure. Yes, thank you guys and Stefan. It was a real pleasure. I, uh, like I say, a lot of people have uh, told me that uh, we've got to get together for a long time. All right, Good. well, thank well, you everybody really for joining us, and don't forget to like and subscribe to Sam's channel, to Stefan's channel. And, of course, to Polypop, if you're watching on Google+, this video will be available there. Thank you all, and good night. All right.